Hello, and welcome to Calming the Chaos Podcast, where we talk with people around the world who can help you find peace in a chaotic world. I'm your host, Tracy Canella, licensed mental health counselor, certified eating disorder specialist, and advanced clinical hypnotherapist. Calming the Chaos Podcast is for those who want self-help resources and education. It's not a substitute for counseling or psychotherapy. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. And now, let the chaos begin. Hi, this is Tracy Canella with Calming the Chaos Podcast. And all through the month of October, I've been wanting to do a podcast episode because October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So I wanted to do a podcast episode to tell you a couple of things about domestic violence, to also highlight a case of domestic violence that happened locally here during the month of October, and to also tell you about a personal experience uh, I have had, my husband and I, with another couple that involved domestic violence with that other couple, and also to give you some tips, tools, and resources that you can use if you know of anybody or if you yourself are struggling with a domestic violence or abuse situation. So let's get started with the definition of domestic violence. So simply put, domestic violence is a pattern of abuse or abusive behavior in any relationship that is used by one partner to gain power and or control over another. And it's usually an intimate partner. It can be any sort of partnership, romantic partnership, friendship, if you're under the same roof. Uh, it can be uh, any kind of situation involving an adult child and an adult parent. And it can be a situation where somebody is using abusive tactics to gain power or control over another. And so here is a local story that I have not seen covered on YouTube yet, locally meaning Olympia, Washington. This occurred in the town of Lacey, which is just right next to Olympia, and it involved an Asian couple. And the woman's name was Young An, and the man's name was Che An. And they were a married couple, and they were going through a divorce. And there was also an order of protection. The woman lived with her children and the man lived apart from the residence because of the protection order. So on Sunday, October 16th, officers responded to a phone call and a neighbor had called in saying that there was screaming and sounds of a struggle. And so when the cops got to the house, they met with the children who said that their mother and father had gone uh, shopping and had left about 30 minutes before that. So the cops actually searched the home and found some duct tape and they believed it could have been used on the wife, uh, Young An. So Young An had this domestic violence protection order against her estranged husband, Che An. And so because of this, 
and the reported abduction, there was an Amber Alert that we all got on our phones on that Sunday. I remember receiving it. I remember my husband receiving it. And a lot of my friends did too. So the Amber Alert basically said, Young An is five foot three inches tall, 120 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. And Che An is five foot eight inches tall, 180 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. And there was pictures of them on the Amber Alert. So we were on alert looking for these people if we found them and they actually did put a description of the blue Dodge Caravan van and the license plate number in the Amber Alert. And they also said that she was reportedly taken by force by Che On. So they put a lot of information in this Amber Alert. So what the cops were able to find out from surveillance videos and from interviewing people was that on October 16th, Young Ong came home from church with her kids. And then there was a video footage of her estranged husband pulling up to the driveway and just using the garage door open to gain access in his blue van. And he went into the garage, went into the house and apparently became very angry and punched Young On and tied her up with duct tape. And so the victim, Young On, reportedly used her Apple Watch to notify 911 and all of her contacts that she needed help. So that was really smart. After he allegedly kidnapped his wife and attempted to bury her alive, the woman was able to escape and run for help. King 5's Kelly Greenberg has the story. The court will order that the defendant be held no bail. 53-year-old Che An will remain behind bars, awaiting charges of attempted murder, kidnapping, and felony harassment. His wife asking for this message to be shared in front of a judge. These are her words. Please, no bail. I am really afraid for my life. I just want to emphasize that I fear him so much and he will kill me again if he is out. It was this past weekend. Probable cause documents allege On kidnapped his wife and threatened to kill her. Their daughter told police the two were going through a divorce and On would come by their home in Lacey to do laundry. Security camera footage shared by a neighbor shows a man who authorities say was identified as On pulling a minivan into the garage. The van is later seen speeding out of the neighborhood. Those probable cause documents allege On attacked his wife, tying her up with duct tape. He then drove her into the woods not far from their home, dug a hole and placed her in the ground. The documents say Che told her she was going to die. She was so scared. However, before she was buried, she seized an opportunity to escape, wiggling out of that duct tape, climbing out of the hole and running for her life. Che On was arrested a few hours later. In Lacey, Callie Greenberg, King 5 News. According to the news, Che On, he placed his estranged wife, Young On, into the van and drove her into the woods. He tried then to bury her alive. He left her in the van while he dug the grave and he placed her in this grave and was actually starting to put dirt on her. But he was also circling the grave really nervously. But somehow she was able to escape both the grave and some of the duct tape. She was able to get the tape off 
and go to a nearby house where the person answered the door and called the police. The police found her hiding in a shed in the person's front yard. She was scared. She was frightened. And she told the police, quote, my husband is trying to kill me. And she was screaming. She was covered in dirt and she had extensive bruising to her legs, her arms and her head and had duct tape still wrapped around her neck, her lower face and her ankles. There was so much bruising on her legs, arms and her clothing and her hair were just covered in dirt. And so she was transported, thankfully, to a hospital to receive care. And the surveillance video did show that van going in, got the license plate number and taking, you know, and, and speeding out of that garage. So they knew who took her. And also, Young An told the police that she was driven in the van somewhere. She didn't know where and put in the ground, but she was able to escape. They were able to get a probable cause declaration going so that they can be on the lookout for Che An. She also said that he stabbed her in the chest. So then, uh, so she's in the ground, but she's able to escape. And um, she managed to get that duct tape off of her. Um, I just sometimes the, the strength of humans is so amazing. And uh, I was so happy to hear that she was safe. Because when the Amber, Amber Alert uh, started again, it told us that she had been found alive. And I was so happy. She was found the very next day, too. So that really made it cool. It, less than 24 hours, well, less than 24 hours after her abduction, she was able to break free. And the cops actually caught Che on uh, less than 24 hours after the abduction. Pretty cool work, I would say, by our Thurston County Sheriff's and our State Patrol here in Washington. Investigators went out to the spot described by Young An, and they did find some duct tape, and they found some of her hair, and they found the shallow grave, and they did locate Che An and put him into custody. So he was booked in Thurston County Jail, and he remains there uh, to this day. Uh, so he is being held on a $2 million bond. Uh, however, uh, Young On had pleaded with the court to please not have him have any bond because if he got out at all, he would absolutely come back out and kill her. So another interesting piece of information about Che On was that he was an armed force veteran and there's speculation that one of the reasons why he wanted to kill his uh, estranged wife was because he was afraid that she would receive his pension from his job. So Che is due in court and uh, going to go through some other processes before he's fully arraigned. Che On is due back in court and actually may have been back in court this past week for a firearms review. And he is scheduled to be arraigned for that attempted murder and kidnapping charges on November 1st. So you'll be hearing this podcast interview on October 31st. And on November 1st, he's due back in court to face those charges. 
And young An is not saying a whole lot, which I completely understand. She's probably, she and her children have been through a lot of trauma. And I wish her the best help, hope, and healing as she recovers from her physical, mental, and emotional injuries. So whenever I think of domestic violence, it reminds me of a couple my husband and I knew back in 2007. Actually, we both met the wife, I will say, and the husband, I will say, together as a couple, couple and couple. We went over to their house in 2007. And how we met them was my husband and the wife were co-workers. So they worked together and they had a really good work friendship and uh, said, hey, why don't we get together and outside of work and have some fun? So we did go to their house. And uh, this really reminds me of the perfect couple. They really seemed to have it all together. They had three grown adult sons and they uh, really seemed to be a fun, loving couple. And we met with them sometime in 2007 and our intention was to meet at their house. I was going to be the designated driver. I had just gotten out of grad school and I was studying for some tests anyway. I was a voc rehab counselor at the time. So I offered to be the designated driver for that night. We were going to hang out at their house and go to a bar and then go to a karaoke bar afterwards. And so that's what we did. And it was a fun time. The first bar, though, after we were getting ready to leave it and we got into our cars to go into the karaoke bar, I noticed that the husband was very drunk. And I told him, I said, listen, I need your keys. And he would not give them to me. He was in the driver's side of his truck and he had the keys in the ignition and he was going to drive the truck away. And he was so plastered, you guys. I had to get those keys from him. I kept asking him and I thought if you could even give the keys to the wife so she could drive, she was in much better shape and he refused. But then he reconsidered. He looked at me and said, okay, I'll give you the keys if you will dance with me when we get to the karaoke bar. And I said, okay, I will dance with you. So gave the wife the keys and then they drove to the karaoke bar. We got in our car and I drove my husband to the karaoke bar and we were having, you know how there's different kinds of music there. Some people will sing country songs. Some people will sing rock songs. Well, it just so happened that somebody was somebody was singing uh, Time After Time. I think it's by Belinda Carlisle. And the husband looked at me and said, it's time for our dance. So we go out to the dance floor and oh my gosh, you guys, this was the creepiest dance I had ever had. Not only was he sweaty, but he was pressing in on me pretty hard. And it was so awkward. And I was so glad when it was over. And I was even more glad when we were able to leave the karaoke bar. And so, you know, aside from that creepiness of the dance, I was telling my husband, I just felt really good about hanging out with them. They just seemed like a really good couple. And I thought maybe we could do it again in the future. But you know, it's really interesting. The very next day, we heard from a family friend who was also with us that night. So a friend of the wife and the husband's family. And he was a pretty close friend of theirs. And he told us that that the husband had been arrested for attempting to smother the wife. 
the very same night we had been with them at the karaoke bar, right? It still gives me the chills when I think about this. Uh, We never got together with them after that. But then in March of 2013, five years later, she ends up deceased. And I'll tell you the story in a minute. She was just about to be 43. It was two weeks before her 43rd birthday. So she was 42 years old at the time when the wife was found deceased. Their marriage lasted for 26 years. And they had, of course, I think I mentioned this before, three adult sons. So here's the story and the events of how she died. And the reason I'm telling this story is that so that you can pick up some possible red flags. One of them we've already talked about, which is alcohol use. And alcohol use is a big red flag because it lowers the inhibitions and any kind of violent nature that could be there anyway is just going to be a lot more dangerous when you add that ingredient. And so I would hope that by me telling you this story, that you could possibly in the future pick up more red flags and do something preventative, reactive, proactive, whatever. So the story starts because the wife had filed for divorce a few days before her death. And the husband was aware that she had filed for divorce. He had been served his papers. He, in fact, had another girlfriend. And the wife had even been in contact with the girlfriend of the husband, saying she was concerned about the husband's mental well-being and violent nature, and that she was becoming increasingly afraid of him. So on the day of her death, the wife approached my husband, who is now her supervisor at work, and uh, asked him if she might have the rest of the day off to go pick up her son. And of course, he said yes. So she left a couple of hours early. And so surveillance cameras show that she went out into the parking lot and got into her car, but was very soon approached by somebody in a van. Now, the person was on foot. The van was at another location, a little bit further away in the parking lot. But the person identified from the van was later identified to be the husband. The husband got in the car with the wife, in the wife's car, and they left. And they got back about 40 minutes later in that car, and surveillance video saw them both entering into the van and leaving and did not return. And investigators actually had determined that the husband had purchased the van only a few days prior to this incident. So at approximately 4.45, so this was about three hours later, uh, the husband checked into a motel and surveillance footage of the hotel showed him checking in and her also in the background wearing clothing consistent to what was found on her at the time of her death. So at 5.20 p.m. that night, the husband left the motel room and purchased some fast food. And his van was later found at a nearby Walmart. And surveillance show him leaving the parking lot in his truck at about 6.20 p.m. 
So the events of the evening unfolded as such. The husband calls Como News, which is our one of our local Seattle news stations, and asks them to post on their Facebook page, because he didn't have a Facebook page, that he had killed his wife of 28 years. And then he hung up after Como started asking him more questions. And then the relatives of the wife called law enforcement to report the wife missing. They were told by some friends that the husband did contact them too and told him, quote, my wife is dead and I've done something bad. Then investigators started searching for the vehicles associated with the two. And what they found was the husband's truck traveling the wrong way on a major interstate here in Washington at 3 a.m. that following morning. So the husband was involved in a high-speed chase by the cops. They had to throw down spikes on the road and to stop his truck. And even when the truck was stopped, he exited the, the truck carrying a tire iron and was lunging toward the cops. And he was only, the husband was only able to be taken down by a canine unit. Now, the husband struggled with some bites and abrasions and was taken care of at a local hospital, but then he was booked. He was also found to be under the influence of some over-the-counter drugs. So what the husband told the detectives was interesting. He said, well, my wife could be in any of two possible motel locations. So, of course, the, the cops go and investigate both locations. And he said she was still breathing when I left her. So when they found her uh, in one motel room, the husband said, well, we got together, we had sex, and then we had a fight, which she won. And then he said he left the motel room got his fast food, went to the Walmart and gave her a hundred bucks so that she could take a cab back to her car at her workplace. But eventually law enforcement found her dead. Later, it was said that she had died of asphyxiation and she also had two relatively deep but superficial lacerations on her neck. And her car was eventually recovered from the workplace and there was blood on the steering wheel. In the van, detectives found clothing items like a sock and there was a blanket, there was a pillow with blood on it and a sweatshirt with the wife's keys in the pocket. There was also a ripped tank top and a fixed knife blade. And then they searched the husband's truck. There's three vehicles involved in this. But in the husband's truck, they found a receipt for Advil PM and also notes to his family members saying that he had done something bad. So as they found the wife's body, they found her clothing, they found the utility knife, and the husband had the motel key in the pants. It was pretty clear about who had done what, but the husband pleaded originally not guilty, and he was kept in jail on a $2 million bail bond. And later, he pled guilty and he is serving a 26-year sentence now and is due to be released in 2039. And he is no, no longer able to have contact with his family members or grown adult sons. 
So what can we learn from this, right? On the night that we hung out with them, they seemed so fun. They seemed normal. Now we have learned that there's extensive domestic violence going back all the way to 2007, that very night that we hung out with them and he held a pillow over her trying to suffocate her. In fact, I think the only reason why she may have lived through that night was because one of her adult sons crashed into the room and then saw what was happening, prevented it and called 911. Well, after that night, the husband did some jail time, but also was in two years of supervision under the Department of Corrections. He was also not ordered to have any hostile contact with the wife uh, for five years. Ironically enough, that order expired right before she was murdered. So the order expired on February 25th, 2013. She was murdered in March of 2013. But we had no idea any of this was going on in 2007. But then there was this history that came after that, uh, very violent history. So after the smothering incident, uh, both the husband and the wife filed restraining orders against each other in 2009, so two years later. And then in 2012, the wife filed another restraining order against the husband, but it was dismissed due to failure to show up in court. So another red flag being this um, pattern of violent behavior, but also these appearances in court and these restraining and protection orders, they're all red flags. So obviously friends are saying that there's two sides to this 28-year relationship. They look like a happy couple, but they had a violent history. And the friends of the wife say she was in the process of trying to leave the husband when she was killed. And again, really knowing that these things sometimes take time to do safely. Uh, in fact, um, our hearts go out to our friend who we lost and the family members and uh, everybody involved in, in this a tragic incident because it, it may have been preventable. In fact, uh, to on nationwide average, it's said that it takes at least seven tries of breaking away from a violent relationship in order to make that final break. And I'm not sure that the wife had those seven times. So our hearts do go out to her. Please, if you have any friends or family members who are struggling with a domestic violence situation, uh, we have some resources in the description for this video and in the show notes. In Washington State, there's the Washington State Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-562-6025. One thing I want to say, besides the disturbing nature of the fact that he's getting 26 years in prison for what looks to me to be premeditated murder, but apparently was a lesser charge in 26 years, he's going to be released. Another thing I found particularly disturbing is that there is a website apparently that the husband is on and it's called Write a Prisoner. So he's trying to get pen pals and it has a description. It looks like a match.com ad. All I have to say is you. So I hope this has been helpful and I put some links to some ways that you can prevent 
a domestic violence in your area, but really see something, say something. If there's alcohol or substance abuse involved, there's more likelihood that there's going to be abusive behavior if a person already has anger or impulse control issues. Uh, I would also like to say if you see any bruising or marks on people and they're not talking about it, if you can compassionately ask them with care. You can be available to them to help them out um, either financially or by offering food, shelter, care for their kids, uh, time off from work. You, you can be a resource and a listening ear for them. Uh, also, I would encourage everybody to, within the county that you live in, do a Google search of blank county resources. And you'll probably get these really nice little one pagers that will say something like here from from food to shelter to clothing to legal help to um, access uh, to whatever it is resources that you need in the community. They usually have a pretty good one pager that you can download. And one of the things that they have on those papers is domestic violence and the resources and the hotlines that you can call. But of course, if you see something in progress, please call 911 and please uh, be safe about your involvement in getting involved with a physical altercation, right? Just be safe out there. Really, what we want to do is stand against abuse. And I think that if we all set our minds on this intention of not being abusive uh, it's also really good to write things down and keep records. I know that I have kept records of some of the abuse that I have gone through on YouTube. And uh, I think it's really helpful just for me to refer back to that in case something does happen to me in the future. So please keep records and know your resources and stay safe out there, everybody. Uh, take care and I'll see you on the next episode of Calming the Chaos podcast. Thank you for listening to Calming the Chaos podcast. If the information in this podcast has been helpful, please consider subscribing and share it with your friends. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Spotify, and on YouTube. You can also go to our podcast website at www.calmingthechaospodcast.com where you can listen to all Calming the Chaos podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to sharing my next podcast episode with you. In the meantime, take care.